Okay. Good morning. Good evening. Good afternoon. Wherever you're at on earth, whatever time zone it is, you're once again listening to Culture in Motion, twice monthly broadcast on uh, terrestrial radio, cable 90.7 FM, community radio coming out of Portland, Oregon, and uh, KBOO.FM on the net worldwide and uh, on Spotify as well. We talk about the intersections between culture, politics, activism, art, and so forth. Myself and co-host Ryan Danley. What's up? What up? I'm Mike Crenshaw. Today we have a very special guest. We have Captain Lobo of the Brown Berets. Welcome, Lobo. Thank you, comrades. Appreciate it. So yeah, man, we will get started. I know um, coming up in the 70s and the 80s, I heard about the Black Panthers from Jump, um, the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. Often when people would talk about the Black Panthers, um, if they were educated about the, the political uh, movements for social justice and liberation of the day, they would say, well, you know, it's not just the Black Panthers. There's uh, the Young Lords and the Brown Berets and the Young Patriots, those would be a few of the groups uh, that would, would be mentioned. So my awareness of the Brown Berets goes back to being a younger man and hearing the name. And I understand that the Brown Berets are a current politically active formation in the struggle for uh, human rights and justice. Mm-hmm, yes, sir. So um, tell, tell us about the work you're doing. I know, Ryan, you have a, a overview you were going to kind of share with the people as well. Yeah, I'm just, uh, you know, uh, where you, uh, are you from the Northwest or are you, uh, you you're just residing up here now? No, man. Uh, uh, what brought me up here was uh, kids. I had mm -hmm. a choice to make. I was like, man. Me and my old lady, we're splitting up. I have a choice. I could stay back home in the Southwest and never see the kids again, do another whole statistic. Or I could take my happy ass to Oregon and try to make a living. Happy butt. Sorry about that. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, I didn't really know much about Oregon. Uh, this was like uh, early 90s, you know. Northeast Portland was jumping off. Uh, from what I remember, I remember uh, walking the streets of Northeast Portland and deep, deep, deep in uh, Gresham in the 90s. And I remember thinking, my goodness, it's all one big giant city, Portland, but it's so crazy. Gresham in the 90s was very rural mm -hmm. uh, and Northeast Portland was considered very urban, right? And I was like, okay, well, so if my kids are going to be here, this is where I'm going to be. And I remember <laughs> asking people, so where's all the Mexicans? Like, <laughs> I want to live with, with my peoples, man, because in the Southwest, we're the majority, right? So I was like, all right, this is cool, man. I see I see all, all walks, but where my people are at? And uh, somebody said, oh, man, no, you, you got to go to, to Hillsboro. And uh, they actually said uh, Hillsboro, and I kind of got offended at that. I was like, really? That's where all the Mexicans live, huh? All right. And, uh, and sure enough, I came out here, uh, hooked up with the community, been here ever since. 
saw what happened in beautiful Northeast Portland, all those beautiful old homes owned by Black folks that's now gentrified. I saw all that. I saw Gresham go from very uh, rural to now very urban. You can stand on the corner of 8th and Kelly or 8th and Lindemann, downtown Gresham, and it's very urban now. So I've seen Portland change, but really I've seen the revolutionary politics change. I'm digging it, man. And now we're coming back. <laughs> so you're, uh, you're active in Hillsborough, but also in the Portland metro area. That's right, comrade. Yeah, so... I, I planted my seeds here in Hillsboro. Uh, my unit is here in Hillsboro. But man, we have, uh, you know, active recruits from Vancouver to Southeast Portland to Gresham, at one point all the way down in Woodburn and Salem. We do a lot of stuff here on the west side, uh, but a lot of the mainstream uh, stuff does happen in, in Portland. It's interesting, we, we noticed like Portland is a hub, like what happens in downtown starts spreading. And then you see it happen in Vancouver and then you see it happen in Beaverton. Then you see it happen in, in Hillsboro. So, you know, we're a tactical people, right? We're a warrior people. So I remember thinking, huh, they're uh, kidnapping protesters and my anti-fascist comrades, huh? And they're doing it just right in front of everybody, in front of cameras or whatever. And I was like, damn, like, I love my anti-fascist cameras, but if they could do that just in the middle of anywhere to a white man, what in the hell can they do to me? What can they do to my undocumented people? And uh, sure enough, like uh, a couple months later, we were hearing in the streets that uh, families were looking for their loved ones. And they were like, man, he never came home. And, and then come to find out, you know, people were getting deported and shipped out to Tacoma, man. And it flew right under the radar. <laughs> you know, for um, for our listeners who uh, aren't familiar with the uh, with the Brown Berets, um, what's the uh, like a little like little history lesson for all of us? Mm -hmm. What is, yeah, what's like the... well, like Comrade Mike said, man. You know, so I'm kind of an older cat. You know, I came up from the '70s and '80s. Anywhere, if you think of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense as the vanguard for our Black comrades, you could think of the Brown Berets as the vanguard for Brown people. You know, in the 60s, you know, you had a rise of a beatnik movement. And then literally right after that, you had uh, a revolutionary movement. Everybody was wearing a beret, right? So a beret, right, are these funny looking little hats, right? Tilt to the side. It's actually a French hat. It's a French word, beret. So in the 60s, everybody was rocking it, man. Che Guevara was rocking it. Uh, the Young Lords, they had purple ones. Of course, our uh, Black Panther uh, comrades had black ones. And then uh, the Brown Berets had brown ones. Uh, what happened was uh, the summer of 1967 was literally what started everything. Um, in June of 1967, there was something called the YCCA uh, in California. So you had a bunch of young brown men, a bunch of young Chicanos uh, form this group called the um, uh, Young Chicanos or Community Action, if I'm not mistaken, YCCA. Uh, it was an uh, individual by the name of Carlos Montes, Ralph Ramirez, 
um, uh, David Sanchez and a few others. Um, and basically they were just getting tired of police harassment. Uh, that was one. And then what was going down in the schools too. I think what happens is with history, we forget like back in the day you had corporal punishment. Like if me and comrade Mike were in school, we, we could, I couldn't speak Spanish, man. We couldn't be homies. He couldn't say nothing. They would literally beat us with a ruler. You know what I'm saying? And then if you were told to be quiet, like you were told to be quiet, there was no freedom of speech. There was no none of that. Like all these things we take for granted back in the 60s, literally school was like almost going to jail back then, man. And if you acted out of line, they'd call the cops on you and then the cops would just beat the hell out of you. There's literally documented cases of people literally being beat to death, man, just from not acting right in school. So, so, you know, if you think about the school year in June, 1967, man, these, these cats, they had it. They were done getting beat. Um, there's something called the East LA blowouts. You had a Chicano teacher by the name of Sal Castro, uh, who was organizing his students, um, who was teaching them the, 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 the basics of capitalism, how evil it is and all that. And then them seeing people getting beat, um, they had something called the uh, East LA blowouts. There's a movie called Walkout. And it basically is a story of the Brown Berets and Sal Castro. And basically it shows where Sal Castro uh, in, in that summer, beginning in that summer, all the way into the end of the 1960s, he just basically got thousands of brown kids in all of Southern California, not just LA, just got up and said, nah, we're, we're marching. They took over city halls. They took over um, local city uh, council uh, meetings. And they were basically like, look, if we need to go to the restroom, you shouldn't ask us if we speak English or not. You know who I am. Look, we are tired of getting beat. Um, if I have something to say, I'm going to say it respectfully. You know, just tell me to be quiet. And if I don't be quiet, call the cops on me because they're probably going to kill me. They're probably going to beat me to death. So um, that whole summer was just hot off the block. Sal Castro was jailed. Um, people were like trying to get militant. Um, the urban myth is that that was the beginning of the Vietnam War. And some OGs came back and said, well, there's something called the Green Berets. And they're like a tactical military force, but we're brown. And the Black Panthers have a black uh, beret, Young Lords is purple. Well, why don't we be brown, brown berets, right? And if you look at the traditional brown beret uniform, it almost looks like an old GI uniform, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then that's when the militancy popped off. Uh, what really popped it off uh, was 68 uh, and 69. 68 and 69, all that anti-Vietnam sen sentiment. Um, you had marches. Um, the anti-Vietnam fervor was so strong that people were tired of seeing black and brown on the front lines that <laughs> the urban, again, urban legend is that some brown berets that summer broke into a local armory and stole a tank and drove <laughs> it in a parade. Like these cats back in the 60s, so they were about it, man. They were not, <laughs> they were not playing, you know? Um, and then, of course, uh, yeah, I'm sure y'all know what happened in 68 with Reagan and and uh, him trying to pass the Mulford Act, which basically was aimed at 
the Black Panthers from uh, doing an open carry uh, uh, event over in Sacramento right up to him. Secret Service couldn't do anything about it. Uh, and we were a side project of the Mulford Act, right? Taking away the weapons and so forth. So then you started to see a small decline in the militancy in the early 70s. Um, you had people that were activists uh, like uh, Corky, Ralph Rodolfo Corky Gonzalez. Uh, he was from Denver, the Crusade for Justice in Denver. Uh, the movement started moving west, obviously, wherever there's a lot of Chicano, Chicana, uh, now Chicanx with our two-spirit comrades uh, mm-hmm. population, right, in the southwest. It started moving west. Uh, Corky, and actually there's some other people in in Colorado that uh, in the 70s, they were actually killed in bombs. Like, uh, mm-hmm. they had cars blown up. Los Siete, the Boulder, the seven people of Boulder, Colorado, they were all blown to pieces. Come to find out it was by the FBI, another project of Pro and so forth. Um between the 70s and 80s, uh, there were some acts of militancy in 73 and Wounded Knee. There was a beret that stole a small Cessna, landed it on Wounded Knee, gave AIM some weapons and supplies, flew it back, and then ended up getting caught. But even the owner of the plane was like, man, I can't even press charges. He was so smooth about it, <laughs> you know. Um, the uh, 80s and 90s, uh, the berets started getting heavily involved with the uh, cocaine and the gang uh, movement. Uh, That's where I come from. So, you know, being born in the 70s, I remember in the 90s, I remember in the 80s and 90s, but mainly the 90s, uh, in the Southwest where I'm from, crack was just bad, man. It was hitting the streets, the the gangs, the body of warfare. And I remember literally seeing berets on like these huge-ass old-school radios radioing each other and they're like oh there's a gang shootout over here and they would literally get a carload of berets drive to the shootout and stand in front of the gangs to try to call a peace like why are you trying to kill your own people man like you know try to talk to them and i mean like the balls these guys had like <laughs> <laughs> you know and so that's uh that was uh, the first time i remember seeing berets was doing that uh as a little kid and the second time at some car shows, like, man, these guys are about it. They look like they would just kill me with no remorse. Like, who are these guys? Um, and so that's a, you know, that's a small bit of their history. Right. Um, what, what ended up happening here is here we kept noticing, like, there was a, there was kind of like a window of opportunity for us. You know, we were noticing that, man, you know, all right. Uh, we face a bit of a different problem than maybe some other people do, whether we speak the language or not, whether we're documented or not. And it came to the point where we felt like we needed to do something. And honestly, what really pushed me back into the militancy and to get into the Brown Berets and all that was my kids, man. To be honest with you, mm. you know, I remember uh, at the time there were seven and eight my little girls coming home talking about they're trying to say something about a wall, build a wall. And, and a lot of people think that is Trump rhetoric. They were doing that way back when. Yeah. And I remember uh, telling them, oh, that's just, you know, it's an epitaph for being brown. Don't worry about it. And then uh, my well, 13 at the time, my son, I remember 
they were picking on him and having an accent and he got in trouble. And when I went to pick him up at school, they literally had him in a padded room. And I was like, my son's not going to hurt him. So he's not going to hurt you. Why is he in here? And I kid you not, man, they had these three rooms that were all padded. He was in there uh, and I saw two young little black sisters in there. So I was like, oh, I get it. So it's the black and brown people that y'all literally are locking up. Um, After experiencing that with the kids and then my very first, uh, ironically, May Day uh, event back in the late 90s, I was like, yeah, we, we have to have a militant force that's culturally and ethically ethnically for us by us that recognizes us uh that uh, it's just like another vanguard that's just going to put a stop to it and be like yo this is what we're about you will not you know harass our children in school and if you do we're going to show up and you're going to have to deal with us no you're not gonna forcibly kidnap somebody there literally is an oregon law and I forget it's like ORS 233 dash, or is it 333-something that defines what kidnapping is. And that's literally what ICE and DHS do every time they're in Woodburn, Salem, Southeast Portland, Hillsboro. They literally are breaking that law. Mm-hmm. And we're tired of it, man. You know, if we see that happen, we're gonna call it out and we'll do a citizen's arrest if we have to. You know, mm-hmm. and if I gotta go down, I gotta go down, man. I'll I'll rest in peace with the ancestors. We have to have that militancy, and, and now we're back. And that's what we're about. In speaking, listening to you speak about the militancy, uh, the first question that comes to mind is, have you had the opportunity to intervene when somebody is uh, from one of these state agencies is attempting to actually violate somebody's rights? You know, it's the most heartbreaking thing ever. We... Uh, didn't see it happen. We saw the aftermath. And I'm here to tell you, it was worse than actually seeing the brother get deported. So uh, at one point, we had manned a um, ICE reporting hotline. It was us. It was uh, uh, some comrades from Beaverton. It was Perk. It was Irko. It was some other people from Portland. And uh, Perk had actually purchased and funded like an 800 number right so if you saw ice anywhere in oregon actually but they piloted it in portland and in hillsborough you could call this number it was banned 24 hours by us bilingually and you can say i see i think i see something then we would team up with the aclu legal observer and then we had people that were called like verifiers right and they would go on scene and verify yeah okay yeah the comrade mike he said he saw uh, the pit, or I'm sorry, ICE here, uh, DHS here. Okay, yeah, I'm verifying it's here. So then you would have uh, the operators that man the line, the, re- the verifiers, and then you have people like ACLU Oregon, uh, like uh, some other orgs, like us. They'd be like, okay, no, they're there, we're out. And we would show up and we would try to do whatever it was legally we could do. Uh, ACLU, I highly recommend they have something called, uh, it's an app that'll activate your phone, right? So they would always tell us, record, record, record. So twice, it happened twice. The first time we got uh, to uh, the uh, courthouse in Hillsboro, um, the young man, I guess it was a couple, he had been deported. 
for whatever reason, I don't know, even to this day, if his wife or partner, whoever it was, if she had papers and they were just being lenient and we're going to let her stay mm-hmm. or something. Um, but they were keeping her like forcibly keeping her and we saw them enter and they entered through the back. Now, if you go into a courthouse and you're, and you're careful and you watch, usually it's uniformed officers or like uh, attorneys that'll like show a badge and they don't have to get scanned. You and I, we had to get patted down. We got to take our shoes off, take your belt off. These cats were undercut. They looked like regular Joes and we saw them go in through the police entrance. So what that told me is they knew, but yet we're supposed to be a sanctuary city, state, county. Don't give me none of that. They knew. So then um, she was literally being held by these guys. And so we confronted them. And it wasn't until then with the ACL legal observer and confronting them that that's when they showed their credentials. They didn't show this lady nothing. They had deported her husband. They were keeping her. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Terrorist or whatever. Exactly. They were keeping her. And not only was she seeing her husband getting deported, which had already happened before we got there. She was afraid to go and get her kids, man. It was time to pick up her kids from daycare and they were keeping them. So then, you know, as a militant, I'm thinking, do I take one to the chest and try to bail my brother out? Or do I stay with his lady and try to figure out how to get the kids? And then, you know, for us that are parents, it's not that easy showing up to say, I'm here for Jose Maria and whatever. Nah, man, you got to be on a list. You got to call ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a fiasco. People showed up. They wouldn't release the kids. Mom is freaking out. It was the most heartbreaking thing ever, man. It really was. So, yeah, I've had to be involved with it. And, you know, it's an interesting dynamic because we love where we're at. We acknowledge where we're at. We, you know, we, we, don't, we don't necessarily call this Oregon. I call it Ch- Chinook land or Kalapuya land, right? It's occupied, right? right. And, and I love being here because we got some down comrades, man. But what's funny is Oregon is supposed to be a blue state. <laughs> we got all these nice sounding laws. And yet that experience I had was worse than I ever grew up with in Texas and New Mexico. Yeah, I think uh, I think the, the boundaries of what blue is is really being tested right now. You know, I think the idea that you know, like uh, that liberalism is some sort of like path to like revolution or like freedom for people is, is is is, I mean, us on the left have known for a long time that that was never going to really be the answer. You know that that they still sort of bought into the system. You know, and I just think that we're seeing that more on like a global or on a, not a global, but like, uh, well, maybe, um, but like a, that, you know, that sort of like mushy middle, like I still believe in the system. Um, I still believe that all we got to do is change a couple things. Um, but as long as like, we still run off the same blueprint, everything should be fine. It's just not going to be the answer, you know? And, um, and we're just looking, you know, we, in just situations like this, like there's just nobody, I mean, everybody will, 
from here to here to Medford would tell you that they are a fan of making sure that people aren't separated from their kids and stuff like that. But like, we still just have ice people just grabbing people from the thing. You know what I mean? So where, where, where is this muscle? Where is this like liberal push for it? Where are our, where are the people that we vote for when it comes down to this stuff? Because they're, I just, I just don't see it. You know what I mean? And and you're still having to go in there and, and, and fight for folks. And it's like, well, like why why has this been left up to you still when we when you know we're we're the we're the, the the bluest state in the nation and stuff like that well we're the bluest state in the nation it's a real sad state of affairs for for what blue means yeah right right exactly yeah it's a trip uh, observing everything you just described uh it gives me a genetic memory almost in my third eye of you know, people arriving on slave ships mm. and mm. separated uh, by age and by sex and then hauled off to whoever was going to use them. Um, mm. Definitely reminds me of the stories I've heard about uh, Native families being split up and kids forced off to boarding school where they could no longer speak their language. And all those things beg the question of, you know, there's an industry, there's a couple of industries involved in this process um, of harming people and of splitting up families and putting people in cages. But one of them definitely is the business of stealing people's children. Mm. And I don't think that there's been enough investigative reporting done on what's driving that. I'm sure that capitalism is at the root of it. But it's hard for me to not believe that there's um not something more evil. I mean, I, I mean personally, for me, like my opinion is that I just think they like uh, being really cruel. Like um, uh, Trump's guy uh, with uh, the dude with the bald head. I can't even remember his name. The the real creepy Nazi one. Um, Stephen Miller. Yeah, Stephen Miller. I mean, he he was he was the one who came up with the separating kids. He was like, let's take their kids. Like just like let's just be that. Let's just like focus on being that cruel. You know it's what I mean? Historical continuum that's actually never stopped. Exactly. It's just yeah. like, right. like let's let's just be as cruel as we can to people. And it's uh, I think um, I think they for some reason they believe that makes them tough or something. Like they're being tough. Like well, I mean, to me, to me, cruel, cruel cruelty is for cowards. But like you know, I mean, you know, like it's, it's they want to break the will of the people. Right. Exactly. You know, and that's. And it's like they, they view it like breaking a horse or something like that. You know what I mean? If we just beat on it long enough, it'll. And you know, all it's going to do is it's just going to radicalize even more. I mean, I'm just waiting for 10 to 15 years from now. Some little Maria doesn't go on the max and be like, I was here. You deported me and takes all of us out with right. C4 back in her backpack. And I'm not going to blame her one bit. I'm just going to tell her just. Wait until I'm close enough so I don't feel that <laughs> You know, like, and they wonder why they radicalize us. You can look at ISIS. You can look at, you know what I'm saying? Like, we're dropping bombs in other countries. We're radicalizing them, and they're coming after us. Well, maybe we should stop. I, you know, it's interesting. I, I wonder, honestly, if it's not a combination of the two, you know, like, like, we're, like what Comrade Ryan said, like, if they're just not trying to be evil. And then, like what uh, Comrade Mike said, you know, it is capitalism, but I also wonder if it really isn't a combination of capitalism, the the uh, police, military, industrial complex, mm-hmm. and then 
just something creepy that I don't, I can't put my finger on it, but you know, <laughs> my missus, uh, I tease her as a revolutionary couple. I have to get used to reality TV and it makes me want to barf. <laughs> One show that she watches that I found very interesting was, uh, I think, I think it was called like Navajo Cops or Navajo PD or something like that. And what it is, is it shows uh, these, uh, these law enforcement people uh, just riding over uh, their precinct. So like a regular cop is going to have like a route, right? And they mm -hmm. patrol it and they guard it and whatever. Uh, but these Navajo police officers, like they go over states, like they're doing a couple hundred miles because the reservation is so expansive. One thing that's interesting is because they are an indigenous people, if somebody says, oh, I saw a skinwalker or I was, you know, doing a smoke <laughs> dance and I had an image because it's in their culture, they have to go and investigate that. So I found that interesting. And man, one time, you know, as a warrior to warrior people, they know how to track. You can ask any native here. If you go to Warm Springs, uh, I'm trying to be vegan. I'm vegetarian right now. But I know if I go to Warm Springs and I tell one of the elders, yo, man, I'm hungry. Let's go hunt a bear. Let's go hunt elk. They will show me and they can teach me how to track. They, they've been doing it for generations, been doing it for eons. In one of the episodes of this show, this police officer, this cop, is tracking in the desert saying, oh, somebody said they saw a skinwalker. Oh. And, he, and I saw it, man. He came across a camp and it was all deserted. Nothing but kid stuff in the middle of the desert little rattlers, diapers. And he was like, man, we're a good two or 300 miles from the border. Like, what in the hell is this here? You know? And then you wonder, like, really, we just lost four or 500 kids? From the mm -hmm. Like, how the hell do you just lose kids? Right. Uh, you know? And then how many times do you see what they're doing in downtown Portland when our anti-fascist comrades give them hell? And you see DHS come out with a new toy. Right. Yep. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then not only do they come out with a new toy i kid you not i see it online for half as half the price right and i'm like i swear to god i think i just saw this new little military gadget being used against the comrades mm -hmm. and then i look back at video and stuff oh yeah that was a month ago this leaf blower thing that was shooting out all this like mace or whatever mm -hmm. oh yeah now i can buy it for about two or three hundred bucks <laughs> it's all related man it's, no, it it's all interconnected. Um, it's uh, I thought about too, and just you know, one more thing I wanted to add to that is that the military-industrial complex has a need for perpetual war. So you have these people who are manufacturing weapons and surveillance systems, but they're selling them to both sides, so they profit off of war. So perpetual ongoing war is stoked by you know, this, this country and a handful of our allies constantly brutalizing people, constantly mm. engaged in genocidal projects, you know, and by doing that, we guarantee transgenerational enemies, so to speak, you know, mm. because we're putting trauma in people's DNA that it's going to be part of the purpose of their existence that they uh, stand up and fight against that. Man, that you are 100% right. And that's so, so creepy to think about, you know, it's, it, and it is like that it is perpetual. How long have we been in the Middle East? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and they want us there because that's their profit. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, have either of you guys watched the uh, Exterminate All the Brutes documentary? Oh, I've heard of it. I've heard of it, though. Is it good? It's, it's amazing. It's a four-part thing on HBO by this Haitian filmmaker, Raul Peckbook. He tracks all this to the beginning when um, the European wanted to take over the, the uh, trade routes that were controlled by the Arabs um, around the Mediterranean, leading into Europe and going east further into Asia. And so that's when the European powers first got their money together and started raiding these trade routes and then eventually got funded by the church. So that was the beginning of European imperialism. Um, so it, you know, when you ask that question, how long have we, and when you say we, we're not talking about us, so to speak, we're talking about the Western powers, you know, this, the same interests that control the state in the so-called West, be it Western Europe, Australia, Israel, these settler colonial states like the United States, right? Um, so we've been messing with the same situation historically, you know, for a couple thousand years, really. And I mean, I That's think it does. Crazy. I mean, yeah, and it just even ends up with like all the way down to like, I'm sure there's a bus contract for Tacoma. You know what I mean? Like, it's just all like it all funnels down to like, just like it's so like part of our society now is like we send people, we'll send people we're deporting to town and we have a contract with those people. And if, if that, that contract's not meant and they don't, you know what I mean? Like, and so they have to have like, uh, you know, it's just, it's the, it's the, it's the business of uh, it's the, it's the, it's all about that business of, um, of, of people, you know, and, uh, and people just want to like live their lives. Want to, you what you want to go to school and just have your kid, like just be treated like a human being. Wow. That's, that's really, that's like, <laughs> wow. That's a lot to and ask then, for. And then they make the system, they make us depend on the system. You know, I was at yeah. a, uh, anti-fascist uh i was at an anti-fascist event here on the west side once and i remember a comrade showed me an app and we could track planes and so forth right and i was like oh this is interesting and he goes oh yeah this one right here that's a dhs drone and i was like what i was like what are they doing out here right <laughs> the dirty little secret about dhs and border patrol is uh they had passed legislation that the border is not just the southwest it's not near canada it's Canada, Mexico, and the Bow Coast, West and East Coast. And they can operate within impunity within 200 miles from Bow Coast. Well, we're barely 60, 70 miles off of our coast, right? Portland's right, not right. that far. Right. So I was like, oh, so that's how they're operating. Wow. And, but what blew my mind is the Cranbrad was like, yeah, but we're here on the West side. And this drone is based out of the Hillsborough Airport. Bro, let me tell you. That lit a fire. I was like, that is my hood. That is my body. Are you kidding me? There is a DHS ICE drone there. I was like, nah, hell no. We, I got to investigate. I got to do more about it. And I found out and I did my homework and it is there. And, you know, on TV and in the movies, they make it seem like, you know, it's about the size of a table. Nah, man, that, that thing was huge. It's about the size of a bus. You know, it's just unmanned, right? Wow. And, I remember, yeah, I remember looking at it, and I, I kid you not, I couldn't get up to the hangar because it was all closed off with barbed wire, but I remember right near the terminals, there's a rental car area, and so the dude that had just finished fueling it, wiping it down, was walking towards me, had a white life, uh, flight, jack, flight suit on, 
So, you know, I knew he was like the, a worker there. Uh, a brown brother. He was Raza. And I was looking at him. He barely spoke English. I was talking to him in Spanish. And I asked him, I was like, you know what that is, right? Like, bro, like, and he just looked at me. He was like, it's a job. Like, what do you want me to do? Right. You know what I'm saying? And I, I can't follow him for that. But yet, it still just made me sick, bro. It was my own people feeling that. Yeah. God, man. And that's how, uh, they, that's how they got us. You know, it's a trip because uh, this is a good conversation. We might have to follow up with part two. Um, I think, you, Ryan, you've been recording. And uh, what time are we at? Have we hit our 30-minute mark? Yeah, we're at our 30 minutes. So um, oh, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's too bad because uh, I could be like I could – we can talk with Lobo all day. Um, <laughs> um, I'll trim out uh, a couple of the spots in the middle, and hopefully we'll get some more time. But um, what? Uh, where can uh, where can people support you? You know what, man? Uh, if you have social media, um, uh, if you look on IG, if you look on Facebook, all you have to do is type in Hillsboro Brown Bray, and we pull up. Um, we if there's anything that um, community centered. Uh, that we do we'll put it on social media um we have a lot going on we have a lot going on with portland we just in august of last year joined up with uh the new black panther party of portland the black rider liberation party the levantine line and some other people and we formed another uh, rainbow coalition we call it the new portland rainbow coalition Cool. And uh, matter of fact, our very first act uh, was, uh, man, where was that? Was that August or was that October in, uh, over in, uh, when all the chuds showed up over at, uh, in the park over in Northeast Portland. But what we did is the Rainbow Coalition set up armed points in front of Geneva's right there on Embo K. And yeah. we did an open carry demonstration. It was the first time in Oregon that black and brown did an open carry demonstration and the police came by and they kept rolling. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, I don't want none of that. They did not want none of that. <laughs> uh, Lobo, thanks for so much for your time. Uh, you're chock full of really great information. Uh, you're a great dude. Um, thanks so much. Um, and then people, please, uh, if you can get out there and support uh, the Brown Berets and support your communities and uh, um, make sure that you, uh, we fight that extra hard, you know. I will, I'll see you out in the world, Lobo, and uh, stay up, Ryan. Likewise. Thank you all. Start to you soon. Thank you all. Power to the people, y'all. Power to the people.